This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello, welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each episode, we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy shows. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And then we wrap it up with a quiz. So let's go to Monday. This week we're talking about December 23 through 27. So this is Monday, December 23's game. And we have Jason Dozier, a nonprofit professional from Atlanta, Georgia. Robin Minor Swartz an editor and consultant from Lansing, Michigan, and Eric Smith, a bartender from Tucson, Arizona, whose two-day cash winnings total $42,000. Yeah, Eric had a couple of impressive games the week before. Yes, uh, yeah, he did, he did well. Jeopardy round, we get the categories FBI headquarters, Rivers, their jobs in 2019, literature chairman of the boards and the ll you say double l in quotation marks twice Mm -hmm. so we correct responses see those double l's come up twice which again makes me wonder if the jeopardy writers are llamas that is um members of our extremely secret it's not secret at all uh (laughs) online trivia league called learned league I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, they they must be, right? At least some of them, I bet. I don't know. There's a thought that Thorsten is a Jeopardy writer. Hmm. But I don't know how much evidence there is to support that. It's an interesting theory. Isn't he in the wrong city, though? I don't know. How would you know? Yeah. Who really is Thorsten? Is he a man? (laughs) Or is he more of an idea? Yeah. We had the Daily Double super early in this round. On question two, Eric uncovered the Daily Double. It was in Rivers at the $400 level. He wagered 1000 which was the, the maximum, because he only had 200 at the time. Um, he got the clue hydroelectric plants and pumping generating stations on the U.S. and Canadian sides of this river have a 4.8 million kilowatt combined capacity. He guessed what is the St. Lawrence, but the correct response is the Niagara River. Yeah, which Canadian and U.S. sides is not exclusive to the Niagara River, but that that should, I guess that's a phrase that should make you think of Niagara. Yes. I was thinking to myself, wait, what river is Niagara Falls part of? And I think I would have said Niagara in his position, but you never sure. really know, do you? Right. We had a round of video clues again, lots of video clues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the FBI headquarters category was all clue crew videos. That category ran ran a little easy, I thought. Contestants yeah, did well with it. Yeah, I I thought so as well. But those are really long clues. Yeah, which probably contributed to two clues not getting uncovered in single Jeopardy and. Uh, and they got 29 of the 30 off the board in double jeopardy. 
I thought the uh, the category their jobs in 2019. I thought that two hundred dollar clue was a little a little sneaky. Yeah, like a trick question. It was a trick, and you don't expect a trick question at the two hundred dollar level. To the clue was Academy Awards host, and it was a triple stumper. Um, the correct response is nobody. There was no host for the Academy Awards in 2019. Right, which I th- I think if I were on stage, I would not buzz in. Oh yeah, no. Cuz I'd be like, well, I don't I don't remember anybody. Yeah. I don't remember who it was, which I'm sure is what they all were thinking. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Eric has 3,800, Robin has 6,200, a pretty good lead there, and Jason has 2,400. Yeah. And so in the double Jeopardy round, get the categories mythology, big words, figures of speeches, the not-so-young Sheldon, birds of a feather, and women on TV. Big words turned out to be, um, like, words associated with, like, large size. I think that I, I, I sort of assumed that it would be, like, words that were that where the word was long but it was it was uh, yeah yeah it turned out to be things like jumbo jet hefty etc which uh the two thousand dollar clue in that category is this word for something monstrous in size comes from the name of a powerful grass-eating beast in job and the correct response is behemoth and it was a triple stumper and i don't know maybe because i'm a, a video game playing nerd Mm. behemoth comes up a lot in in many many video games and so that word was i don't know that that one is always gettable for me so i don't have a good gauge on whether people actually know that word or not (laughs) yeah it did not come to me right away i think i was still thinking not leviathan the other word that's in the bible you know uh when when it timed out i think if i'd had you know if it had been like um if it had been a learned lead question or something where I had, you know, several minutes to mull it over, I would have gotten it. Um, but not not in the amount of time they give for a Jeopardy question. Yeah. Jason struggled quite a bit in Double Jeopardy. Um, maybe just a signaling device issue. Yeah. But Eric and Robin kept it close up until we hit the Daily Doubles at question 15. So Eric uncovered the Daily Double. Um, he found it in the figures of speeches category, um, which was all related to numbers in famous speeches. Um, we'd had uh, clues like this figure that begins a famous speech just means 87. Um, that's four score and seven, for example. Hmm. Um, so he uncovered it at the $2,000 level and wagered 4000 he and Robin were super close at that point. And the clue he got was, from a 1988 speech by a presidential candidate, a brilliant diversity spread like stars, like this five-word phrase. And he guessed hands across the America. I think he was trying to come up with uh, something yeah. that would come out to five words. Yeah. Um, but he didn't know it. And neither did I, actually. Uh the correct response is a thousand points of light. 
Yeah, I I also didn't get it. I immediately went to a city on a hill, which I mm. realized is Reagan. Yes. And if I had paid closer attention to the year, I would have known, of course, that Reagan wasn't the candidate in 88. Right. And when it when he said a thousand points of light, I was like, yeah, I know that. Yeah. But I would have I would have just confidently blurted out a city on a hill and then been really embarrassed in front of everybody if I were on that. So Yeah. I'm trying to remember now the name of the city on a hill. Like for the phrase obviously is from the Bible. And then it also was like a like a treatise in early like colonial American history. John Winthrop. Yes, Winthrop. Yes. So yeah, Reagan Reagan made the phrase, you know, famous in in modern rhetorical, you know, that's that was a, a famous Reagan speech. Um, but he's drawing, you know, he was drawing on um, sort of a rich uh, past for that for that image. Yeah, and I I kind of misspoke. The quote is a shining city on a hill, which would have been six words. But yeah, so Eric loses four thousand uh, mm-hmm. on that one, and that that like we said, uh, Eric and Robin were kind of neck and neck, but that put him behind for the rest of the game yeah and uh robin then a few clues later finds daily double number three in the big words category at the 1200 dollars level and the clue is of the seven ancient wonders the name of this one from the 200s bc reflected its huge size she takes a while and then guesses what are the hanging gardens of babylon Mm-hmm. But the correct response is the Colossus of Rhodes. Yeah. And I I know we have talked about Seven Wonders on the podcast. Yep. Tough break there. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my only thing is, my only uh, assumption is that uh, she couldn't remember all Seven Wonders. And so she, she didn't remember that there was one called the Colossus. Cause, yeah. And so she probably was like, well, uh, there's hanging gardens and a mausoleum and a temple and none of those make much sense (laughs) right so i'll go with one of them yeah 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 always better to guess something than nothing um and she loses three thousand so that drops her down but not as much as eric and uh so she has the lead going into final jeopardy um she's leading with fourteen thousand four hundred to Eric's 9,800 and Jason's 5,200. Mm-hmm. And they get the category British authors. And the clue is, in 2016, the OED celebrated his 100th birthday by adding words connected to his writings, including scrum diddlyumptious. Did you know this one, Kyle? I did. Yeah, me too. I was a big fan when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. So Jason leaves it blank, guesses who is... Uh, with a 46.01 wager. Eric makes a big wager from second place. Oh, Eric. And um, uh, guesses who is Milne, A.A. Milne, the author of Winnie the Pooh. That's not uh, that's not correct, and that drops him down to 800. Still ahead of Jason, who's dropped down to 599. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin has the correct response with who is Doll. That's Roald Doll. So, uh, Robin wins with 19,601. So that takes us to Tuesday. We have Drew Lyman, 
a wine technician from Napa, California. Barbara Hall, a transit operations specialist from Vancouver, Washington. And Robin Minor Swartz, an editor and consultant from Lansing, Michigan, whose one day cash winnings total 19,601. That's right. Um, so going into the Jeopardy round, we get the categories Santa on the map, fill in the banks, a Christmas Carol collage, have a cow, the roles of Morgan Freeman, and metaphors. Yeah, so I think they were making up for the fact that Monday had no Christmas-related categories by doubling up in this one. Yeah, a Christmas Carol collage, I... Uh, I guess I, I had not especially picked up on this in, in um, Jeopardy terminology before, but I think that when you see collage, you're getting like a mixture of a couple types of questions. And so in this case, it is a Christmas Carol collage because it is some clues about Dickens's A Christmas Carol and some clues about Christmas carols, like the, like the type of, you know, uh, song, holiday yeah. song. Yeah. And then Santa on the map was the the title of the category was holiday themed, but all the questions were just about uh, geographic locations that have uh, Santa in the name. Right. I was really bummed in the roles of Morgan Freeman category at the $600 level mm -hmm. uh, that it was a triple stumper. The clue is 2014 Vitruvius voice only. And that is from one of the greatest, I would argue, certainly the greatest movie of 2014, possibly the greatest movie of the decade. That would be the Lego movie. Yeah. I love the Lego movie. You know, I, I, need to, I need to go back and see if we can get into the Lego movie a little bit more. Um, my, my kid hit the age of interested in Legos and movies and Lego movies um, just as just before Lego movie two came out. Mm. Um, and so I am like fully immersed in the Lego movie two with its great hit song, not evil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so good. Have you, have you seen that one? Now that you're saying it, I don't know that I have was that it, it might be one of the many movies that had to fall by the wayside with a yeah. with a baby yeah not evil is the name of the song sung by tiffany haddish um who voiced um the character who seems to be a villain um for much of the movie um queen whatever a wannabe anyway mm. uh so yeah i uh i was not able to get the 600 dollars clue sorry kyle it's okay alex was so bummed in the um fill in the banks category uh, when they couldn't get the correct response at the $800 level in the name of TD Bank, T is the city and D is Dominion. It correct it response is Toronto. Alex doesn't like when they can't get the Canada questions. Right. Um, yeah. Right. All right. But uh, anyway, the Daily Double. Uh, so we get the Daily Double very late in the round at clue number 28 in the metaphors category at the $600 level. Uh, it, Drew finds it. Wagers 2500 And the clue is... Arthur Conan Doyle called this city the great cesspool into which all the loungers and idlers of the empire are drained. And Drew guesses what is Istanbul? The correct response is London. I, I wonder if Drew just didn't know who Arthur Conan Doyle is and thus didn't have any particular, like, 
grounding for where he should start yeah. or if he thought that London would just be too obvious. Mm-hmm. I wondered if maybe he somehow got things mixed up a little bit and started thinking of Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, um, it's possible. Which uh, the Orient Express goes to Istanbul. So, uh, but yeah, so he loses 2500 and goes into double jeopardy trailing a bit but not too too much uh robin has 2400 barbara is tied with barbara and robin are tied at 2400 drew has 1700 and we get the double jeopardy categories it's not good to be the king the sphere of science from o to o um so an o at the beginning and ending of each correct response Celebrity Couples, 1990s Bestsellers, and Metaphors, F-O-U-R-S. I think Alex said something like, I don't know about that, or I don't know what that means. Although he he does get all the material in advance, so, you know. uh, He absolutely (laughs) knows what it means. Yes. I don't know if he's, like, trying to throw some shade at the writers, or if, like, <laughs> like what Maybe. do you mean, you know? Like, is he trying to, like, preserve, like, the illusion that he's not familiar with the material? Like, I, I don't right. know. Um, all right. Anyway. Oh, I, uh, in the celebrity couples category at the $1,200 level, I thought uh, Drew did some, some good Jeopardy strategy there. Um The clue was, he and Miley Cyrus became close while filming the last song. The couple married in 2018, but split in 2019. And Drew brings in with, who is Hemsworth? Gets to be more specific and produces Liam Hemsworth. But, like, always start with just the last name. Um, Yep. Yeah. Much safer. Robin had a tough break in uh, It's Not Good to Be the King, uh, ringing in with King Louis and getting a be more specific and pulling the wrong number so she said uh louis the 14th the clue being he was beheaded in paris in 1793 but drew was able to get the rebound with uh louis the 16th mm-hmm. oh and robin also had a good like a good self-correction in the o to o category at the two thousand dollar level uh the clue was early shakespeare poems and plays were sometimes printed in this format about five by seven inches smaller than a quarto and she rang in with uh what is an octo and you can i think you could sort of see alex looking to see the judges make a ruling and she corrected herself to um octavo which is exactly correct Correct. um not not in need of a ruling when you get that pause sometimes that is your chance to um to make it right (laughs) yeah and and that pause means you're like you know potentially on the right track you know if you were just flat out wrong, you would just get a no, not right. a not a pause and look toward the judge's table. Yeah. Um, Barbara finds uh, Daily Double number two in the 1990s bestsellers category at the $1,600 level. So she's in the lead at that point and wagers 2000 um, and gets the clue. The author of this 1996 novel of politics was listed as anonymous. And uh, I think she misunderstood what the clue was asking for right and responded who is ann coulter they were looking for the title of the novel uh which was primary colors i think she's in around the right time period ish with ann coulter 
I mean, Ann Coulter's still active, but I seem to remember, um, you know, a bunch of Ann Coulter books coming out around then. We get daily double number three at the $800 level in the sphere of science. Uh, and the clue is, in 1543, the world revolved around this man who wrote On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. Barbara found this one as well. Uh, she wagered 2000 uh, and she guessed who is Galileo, uh, but the correct response is Copernicus. Yes. So she loses 2000 there. Yeah. We had people in my living room shouting out both responses. Nice. Yeah. Robin had gotten a little ahead of her. She'd been trying to catch Robin, but she drops down a bit. Made a little bit of a recovery on the last few clues, but still goes into Final Jeopardy trailing a tad. It's pretty close. 11600 for Robin. Barbara has 11200 so just $400 behind. Drew has 7700 Yep. And the Final Jeopardy category is Historic American Cities. And the clue is damage from Hurricane Matthew in this city in 2016 revealed a plot of colonist graves from perhaps as long as 430 years ago. I did not get this at all. I didn't either. Drew guesses what is Houston. That is incorrect, but he bet nothing, so he remains at 7,700. Barbara wagered 4,500. Uh, and guessed what is Richmond, which is also incorrect. Robin wagered 3801, guessed what is Tampa, and she was the closest. Uh, the correct response is St. Augustine, Florida, which realized the clue there. If you go back 430 years from 2016, that gets you to the year 1586, mm -hmm. which is earlier than any British colonies. And... Right. So you have to remember the factoid that St. Augustine is the oldest city in continental America, or at least the oldest European perception of a city mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah. Really interesting decision from Robin not to make a cover bet, and that paid off for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what Robin ended up doing is what I learned is called a second order wager which is to say the most straightforward thing in this situation is to make a cover bet of 10,801 mm -hmm. so that's what I was expecting her to do if she had done that we would have ended up with Drew winning what she did instead was guess that people would assume she was making a cover bet and that Barbara and Drew would wager to stay ahead of her if she made a cover bet and missed. Yep. Um, so she made this, this smaller wager that would have gotten to her to a dollar higher than twice Drew's total. So if Drew goes all in from third place hmm. and he and Robin both get it correct, then Robin will win. If Barbara is trying to potentially, like they... Robin and Barbara could have tied. If I, if I'd been Barbara, I would have bet forty two oh one, right, to get ahead of Drew's double up. So like potentially Robin, Robin and Barbara could have tied with this strategy, 
So, but Robin Robin assumes that people will assume that she is cover betting. I mean, assu- assuming that she she made her that she did her math correctly and that she intended to make a second order wager. So yeah, so she she makes this smaller wager that will get her to twice the third place total, which she I think assumes is what everyone else is sort of heading for. Um, yeah. And that means that she drops down less than the others when they all miss it, and she wins on a triple stumper. So. Yeah risky betting decision but it seems like it was intentional you know like she didn't come up with that number out of nowhere right and it pays off for her yep uh so that brings us into wednesday um uh christmas day december 25th and we are doing this one based on just what we uh what we're seeing on j archive because it got preempted in both of our markets uh by basketball that is correct Um, yeah we have Kristen Butts, a singer from Hoboken, New Jersey, Alex Hookway, an actuary from Columbus, Ohio, and Robin Miner-Swartz, an editor and consultant from Lansing, Michigan, returning with two-day cash winnings of 27400 So we get the Jeopardy round. Um, categories Astrological Terms, History, Nine-Letter Words, Unusual Contests and Prizes, A Power Caller, and the TV show must go on. I will give a shout out to the TV show must go on. To two shows that I thoroughly enjoy were uh, in this category. The six hundred dollar level in twenty nineteen. This cop comedy moved from Fox to NBC, and characters were allowed to curse, bleeped out, of course. And that would be Brooklyn Nine Nine, mm-hmm. one of the television classics of our day yeah robin got it and then the one thousand dollar clue when william hartnell's health forced him to leave this show in 1966 viewers discovered that time lords could regenerate i knew that one yeah that is of course doctor who uh which i believe doctor who and downton abbey are the two shows that are responsible for americans realizing that british people also have tv (laughs) yep the daily double comes up pretty late in the round in the history category at the one thousand dollar level alex uncovers it and wagers two thousand the clue is legend says when columbus saw the three mountain peaks on this caribbean island he chose to name it for the father son and holy spirit and alex correctly responds what is trinidad mm-hmm. so at the end of the jeopardy round oh robin and alex are tied at 6800 and Kristen is trailing with 600 and for some reason we left three clues on the board in that round yes not sure what what was going on perhaps behind the scenes that cut that short but yeah two left on the board in double jeopardy as well yeah i will say that that's not always necessarily a result of people playing slow Mm. sometimes production takes a long time and they need to get back on track or whatever yeah Uh, so they're going to cut it short uh sometimes they have to run promos for the jeopardy all-star games coming up in february of 2019 and so every game you're on has a promo in the commercial break so you're going to miss clues no matter how fast you go. Oh, is that what happened to us? Yeah. I, f- I figured that out. Like, cause I remember like I didn't play slow and most of our games didn't feel slow. 
but we left like the my my, the games that i was in a, a lot of them had clues left on the board and it occurred to me that every episode had a promo about the all-star games and that took up you know two minutes of airtime so i didn't real i am just realizing that now way to put that together i've been like feeling bad that i left stuff on the board yeah all right not our fault (laughs) yeah so in double jeopardy we get the categories face the author northern california mama and dada going out of business on the movie's soundtrack and the next word after so you're looking for the word that comes next in webster's international dictionary mm-hmm. that was a fun uh word play category i enjoyed that a lot yeah it was a good one Ooh, they had a triple stumper at the 800 dollars level but i got that one after Cator's, uh, a very short poem with a fixed amount of lines. Robin guessed Quattro and Alex guessed Porto, uh, but the correct response is Quatrain. Quatrain, indeed. The $2,000 clue. I really enjoy this term. I think because I'd heard it a lot throughout my life and only kind of recently learned what it actually meant. Uh, the $2,000 clue in that same category is after shaktism, deriving happiness at the expense of another's woes. And that is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Do you, are you familiar with Avenue Q? I am not in the way that I should be. Oh, go listen to the song Schadenfreude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will do that. Good. Um, we get Daily Double number two uh, in the category Face the Author. It's a video Daily Double mm-hmm. um, on a preempted show. So um, so yeah. no one will ever see it. <laughs> <laughs> but Alex uncovers it. Uh, and the clue is this author, and presumably they showed a picture, based a 1962 novel on personal experience working in a hospital psychiatric ward which came to me without seeing the picture. I'm not sure I would know what this author looks like. Yeah, I don't know either. Oh, but the category is called Face the Author because they they showed a picture of the author. Okay. And uh, Alex wagers $6,000 and correctly responds, uh, who is Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yep. That big wager pays off and lets Alex close the gap with Robin. Yeah. Uh, And then we get the third Daily Double, the bottom of the going out of business category. Alex discovers that one as well. Wagers 2,000. Uh, So Alex has a a bit of a lead, just a a small lead right now, and uh, apparently doesn't want to risk that lead with a big wager. Mm -hmm. I know that when I was playing, I would have had the same thought now having the benefit of more experience and more discussion with people who know better than I do, I would probably have bet bigger. But the clue is, Sam Mendes directed a theatrical telling of the story of these brothers who built a financial empire that collapsed in 2008. And that is the Lehman Brothers. Mm -hmm. Which he got Um, correct. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Alex is leading with 21,200. Robin is in second place with 14,400, and Kristen is in third with 5,000. 
and they get the Final Jeopardy category organizations. And the clue, founded by students at William and Mary in 1776, its members include 17 U.S. presidents, 41 Supreme Court justices, and more than 140 Nobel laureates. Yeah, I didn't get anywhere close to this. Uh, I, I got it because my choir used to sing at the at the induction ceremony around graduation time um, every uh, year, which we were seated on stage, and it was so long. Yeah. It was so long, and uh, I feel like maybe it was like often like during finals. Oof, yeah. It must have been after it must have been after finals. I I just remember like sitting on stage and being like, How am I going to looking like I'm happy to be on the stage for however much longer this goes right. on? I think that's um, the life of a performer though, right? Yeah. So um Kristen has wagered everything, all five thousand, and writes down what is road. Alex Trebek says, uh, what were you going for? And Kristen says Rhodes Scholar. Which is incorrect. <laughs> yeah, incorrect. Robin has wagered 4401. Um, I'm not sure what her thought process was there, although after seeing the previous day's wager, I trust that there was a thought process. So 4401, and uh, she correctly responds, what is Phi Beta Kappa? And Alex also is correct um, with a cover bet. Uh, so he wins with what is Phi Beta Kappa? Um, presumably you could have written down the Greek letters as well, although it looks like both of them spelled it out. I would I would not have trusted myself to get Phi correct. Yeah, it's the circle with the line down the middle. And uh, I wonder if they would have taken PBK, um, which is how it was often abbreviated in my experience. Yeah, I, I, I have a feeling that this is a much bigger thing on the East Coast. Yeah. Because I realize it's not it's not really like a Greek life kind of thing. Yeah, no. But my college and grad school experiences have been here, yeah. <laughs> Colorado and and Indiana. Yes. Uh, so whereas mine have been here, um, yeah, Massachusetts and New York. Um, yeah, no, it's not like a it's not like a Greek life fraternity kind of thing. It's like a like it's an not honor, honor society. society. Yeah. Um, and if I remember correctly, most people. In my college, most people were inducted, like, at the end of... Were they inducted at the end of senior year? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, this is just um, something you can put on your resume. Yeah. It may, it may be that you're inducted at the end of senior year, and it's something that you put on your resume. But there was, like, you could... Like, if you were especially remarkable, you could be inducted a year early. And that was sort of uh, what everybody was hoping for going forward. Nice. But uh, that means Alex is our champion. Moving on to Thursday. So on Thursday, we get uh, Karen Farrell, a political consultant from Woodbridge, Virginia. Usha Shankar, a, an educator from Pleasantville, New York. And Alex Hookway, an actuary from Columbus, Ohio. He's coming back with $28,801. Mm -hmm. And in the Jeopardy round, we get These Women Make the Clothes, Subtract a Letter, Cooking Verbs, be my baby, be in quotation marks, gonna take my horse, and to the old town road, which for everyone who is older than, I don't know, I guess I shouldn't cast aspersions, but 
my experience with Old Town Road has been through my students. So my perspective is anyone who's older than like 18, we need to go and find this information. Old Town Road uh, is now the record holder for uh, longest consecutive time at number one on Billboard's uh, Top 100. And it is a hip-hop country crossover by Lil Nas X. So those last less categories are from that song. Right. Have you watched the show Stranger Things? I have seen the first two seasons. We still haven't watched the third season. Okay. There were a couple of connections with Stranger Things. Like there was there were two uh there were two clues across the two boards that had Stranger Things connections for me and made me wonder um if that was intentional or just a coincidence in the at the thousand dollar level in the jeopardy round uh in the category gonna take my horse we had in this long cinematic story atreyu loses his horse artax in the swamp of sadness devastating many a child of the 80s have you seen that movie kyle you're a little younger than me so maybe you haven't i don't know i I've, i've seen it but i will say it wasn't during it wasn't in my childhood i uh I think I watched it in college. This is this is parting the veil for... And I know we're talking to Jeopardy folks, so I don't have to be embarrassed about being a nerd. Uh, <laughs> but in college, I started, uh, started running a Dungeons & Dragons group, and I felt that I needed to expand my uh, fantasy background. So I watched NeverEnding Story and uh, like The Last Unicorn and The Dark Crystal and all of these like older fantasy movies yeah um so yeah the correct response is uh the never-ending story and that was uh that was a movie of my childhood and not only did i watch the movie but i read the book until the cover fell off oh wow Um, yeah i read a lot of books until the cover fell off i was a bookish kid but yeah that that's one that lost its cover i'll mention the other uh the other stranger things connection when we get there yeah I thought there were some fun ones in the uh, subtract a letter category. In particular, I enjoyed the $600 clue. Medically, it's the kneecap. Excise a letter and it's a saffron flavored Spanish rice dish. Um, Mm. That is uh, what are patella and paella. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I feel like they're, they're getting a little bit like this, this wordplay category. They really sort of went for some, some surprising ones. Sure. Um, yeah daily double was in the to the old town road category at the 800 dollar level alex found it and wagered 1600 the clue was this city calls elfreth's alley between second street and the delaware river america's oldest residential street and he looked he thought about it for a minute but then ended up getting it correct uh with what is philadelphia yeah you could know that Elfrith Alley is a thing, but for me, the the pointer there was Delaware River. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the only clue I had. So that is near the end of the round. We end up leaving two clues on the board, and at the end of the Jeopardy round, Karen is in the lead at 7,000. We haven't really mentioned her. She didn't get the Daily Double, but she, she got three of the $1,000 clues in the Jeopardy round, and a lot of the others. So she's at 7,000, Alex is at 3,200, and Usha's at uh, 2,600. 
and so the double jeopardy round categories we get that's equadorable art in the vatican words shakespeare used only once which was fun mm -hmm. uh, orthodontia the singer or band in question and the bar e exam bar b-a-r in quotation marks uh, so we get Daily Double 2 um, fairly early in the round, ninth clue, um, in the category That's Equadorable at the $800 level. Alex finds it and wagers 3000 and gets the clue. Ecuador took possession of these islands in 1832, three years before they got a visit from a famous scientist. Um, and uh, Alex correctly responds, what are the Galapagos Islands? Yep. Fair number of rebounds. Um, yeah. Yeah several rebounds yeah there were um, 15 incorrect responses in this game yeah okay so so lots of opportunities for rebounds yep yeah and some of them were uh things like um in the orthodontia category at the 1200 dollars level a reverse overjet is a type of this problem caused by jaw misalignment usha rings in with what is overbite and is incorrect so then alex rings in with what is underbite you know, yep. So you've, there are some like that where it's like, it's kind of, if you don't know, then it's kind of a coin flip. And so if, if somebody else goes for it and misses the coin flip, you have the uh, the good fortune of knowing which side of the coin you you need to go for. Right. Daily double number three comes up 16th at the $1,200 level in the bar exam, B-A-R in quotation marks, which the players had struggled with a bit. Yeah. Uh, it's a video daily double which Alex uncovers and wagers 3,000. And uh, you see an image of a primate. Uh, and the clue is this primate seen here lives in coastal countries of North Africa. So Alex clearly knows that he doesn't know it, um, knows that it has to have B-A-R in its mm -hmm. name and guesses what is a capybara. Alex... Trebek responds, no, but you got the bar in there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think at that point, contestant Alex responds, yeah, but it's not an ape. Yeah, so he knows, but... Yeah, uh, it's a Barbary ape is the, is the correct response on that one. Right, but it's a daily double, so he's forced into a response. Right. Um, and it's always better to say something than to say nothing. Because uh, yep, you lose either way. Yep. And uh, my other Stranger Things connection was um, in the, the singer or band in question at the $1,600 level. Uh, mm -hmm. These punk rockers, should I stay or should I go? That's uh, The Clash. And uh, both The NeverEnding Story and uh, the song from The NeverEnding Story and the song Should I Stay or Should I Go were like kind of plot points in Stranger Things. Like not just, not just you know, on happened to be on the soundtrack, but... Right played significant roles in in the story so i sort of wondered if that was uh just my brain or if somebody sort of <laughs> had stranger things on on their mind when they were writing <laughs> possibly yeah we get to the end of the uh double jeopardy round alex found all three daily doubles but yes. karen has a lock game right so yeah she just uh was pretty solid throughout the game there was a there was a span there in the double jeopardy round where she did not ring in but then toward the end of the game especially after alex missed that daily double number three karen kind of took over from that point mm -hmm. and 
ended up with a lock game going into Final Jeopardy. Um, and the other thing to note here is that in the last three clues, Karen picked up two rebounds from Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Alex kept dropping down and down trying to get back in. And that was just um, because because Alex would ring and get it wrong. And then Karen would pick up the rebound that pushed the spread to a lock game. Yep. Which, I mean, I don't blame Alex for going for it. Yeah. If you, if you think you've got a guess, mm-hmm. you know, that could be pretty good and you're behind, you may as well go for it. Yeah. So Karen has that lock game at 16,200. Alex is at 6,800 and Usha's at 1,000. And the category is 19th century history. The clue is, wanting more French influence in the area he called Latin America, Napoleon III installed an emperor in this country. Usha wagered 1,000, and she guessed what is French Guiana. Alex wagered 1948, which must be a significant number, and also guessed what is French Guyana, but uh, with a different spelling. And then Karen wagered 1,000, and correctly identified what is Mexico. And that was Emperor Maximilian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am not familiar with that history and trying to think of something sort of vaguely around Latin America or what Napoleon III might call Latin America and like trying to think of somewhere with like French associations. I, I ended up guessing Haiti. Yeah, so. and that's not a like that's not a bad bad guess. Um, yeah. They didn't give any years, I think, yeah. probably specifically. Uh, I believe that by the time Napoleon III was around, Haiti had already revolted. Oh, you're so right. Uh, yes. And uh, remembering that, if you are aware of this, uh, the Battle of Puebla, which is what we celebrate with Cinco de Mayo, oh. that was that was Mexicans fighting against uh, the French. Yeah, the French I had not occupiers. Made that yeah. So that was during that time. Yeah. So uh, we finish with um, Usha in third place, Alex in second, and Karen coming back with $17,200. So that takes us to Friday. We have Matt Anderson, a musician from Malden, Massachusetts. Jameson Webb, an actor and writer from Santa Monica, California, and Karen Farrell, a political consultant from Woodbridge, Virginia, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,200. In the Jeopardy round, we get the categories Mail Order Novelties, Proverbs, I Played Poirot, Bible Dictionary with D in quotation marks, Buried in Gate of Heaven Cemetery, and vowelless elements, but the category is spelled without any vowels. So if you look at it, it looks like vowelless elements. <laughs> yeah. Taking all the vowels out of a word that starts with a vowel uh, makes it really tricky to reconstruct. Yep. I thought it was a fun board. Yeah. Uh, this whole game, though, there were a lot of things that were maybe more in double jeopardy there were a lot of things that were a little bit ambiguous and like i felt like we spent a lot of the game with contestants ringing in with things that were 
close but slightly mispronounced or just a tad off and then Alex Trebek like making eye contact with the judges and then sighing heavily um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no it was mostly in double jeopardy I just that that's a strong memory I have of, of this game it's like just Alex Trebek being like almost <laughs> um but okay they actually did they did pretty well in single jeopardy it was double jeopardy where where things started to get a little uncomfortable obviously i enjoyed the bible dictionary category i was pleased to see karen get uh the 800 clue correct this persian ruler of the 500s bc is mentioned in the books of ezra haggai and zechariah uh, that is darius uh, there was a triple stumper at the $1,000 level in that category. This daughter of Jacob and Leah is seduced by Shechem, leading to a horrible revenge by her brothers on his family. Um, that's Dinah. And the, the novel The Red Tent is a sort of a creative oh. reimagining of that story. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that novel, it was very popular a couple years back. Mm -hmm. I remember it's that. a good one. I liked it. My wife read it. I didn't, I didn't read it in the vowelless elements they did pretty well they got l m n m and that one's aluminum um matt i think was still sort of getting the gimmick and trying to come up with it um uh -huh. and get lithium but karen karen picked it up we had n n that's neon and matt got that one we had r g n karen rang in but froze up um and then said oxygen so jameson picked it up that one's argon Yep. At the $800 level, RN, I couldn't think of it, but Jameson rang in with iron. Mm -hmm. And then at the $1,000 level, DN was a triple stumper, but I got it. That one's iodine. Oh, nice. Yeah, I did yeah. not get there. I didn't I didn't get to the uh, two vowels before the first consonant. Yeah. And the daily double was the very last clue of the round at the $1,000 level in the Proverbs category. Karen got it and wagered 2000 and the clue was, in Spanish, this familiar proverb is mas vale tarde que nunca. And Karen correctly translated it to better late than never. Yep. So that uh, ends the Jeopardy round. And Karen has a good lead. She's at 5800, Jameson's at 2000, and Matt is at 1000. That takes us to Double Jeopardy, where the categories are mail order novels, um, as opposed as opposed to the previous round where it was mail order novelties. International sports, taste the rainbow. A color is going to be part of each correct response. Surrounded, with an exclamation point. <laughs> the Russian revolutions, and Ghost Ted. The correct response must not include the letters T-E-D. Right. So, for example, the $400 clue there is, you kicked a football, then kicked out the T-E-D to get this, a play on words. So the correct response is, what is a pun? And you get that from punted. Right. We got Daily Double number two super early at the second clue of the round um, yep. in international sports at the $2,000 level. Uh, Matt uncovered it, wagered 2600 uh, got the clue. The British Empire games are now known by this name, as the Brits are somewhat less imperial now. Uh, and <laughs> I like that that phraseology there. <laughs> somewhat, just a little less imperial. Yeah. Uh, not, not all the way. 
non-imperial. Yep. Um, yeah, uh, the correct response is, what is the Commonwealth Games? Yep, and Matt gets it correct. Yep. Yeah, They cleared the whole international sports category first, I think. A couple of the players were into that one. Yeah. Um, you, don't, you don't see that a lot on Jeopardy. It's nice to see them go for it. So things sort of start falling apart with... Um, almost but not quite answers yeah that's right at, at clue number 12 in mail order novels at the two thousand dollar level one of powell's indispensable book club selections was george saunders lincoln in this purgatory like state and like bless them they're so close yeah karen rings in and says what is the bargo um and alex asks her to repeat it and she repeats Bargo uh, and is ruled incorrect. And then Jameson re- rings in with what is Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Um, the correct response is uh, Lincoln in the Bardo, B-A-R-D-O. Yep. Which, like, you know, I I don't think I knew that word. I've only encountered it in the title of the book, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, clearly both of them knew of the book. You know, it's like that feeling where you've, like, well, I've seen it on the front table, you know, or like the, you know, the list of like, you know, things maybe you should get somebody as a Christmas gift, um, yeah. you know, yeah. or like the short list for a literary award or like wherever it is that you're looking at titles of books, you know, and they were trying to trying to get to that specific word and just couldn't quite get there. Yeah. Continuing with that in the ghosted category at the $1,200 level clue is you put up a portable canvas shelter yesterday then took down the ted to leave this cardinal number matt goes with what is 10th and the correct response is 10 so he was very close they did not give that to him obviously because it's not the right he was thinking ordinal number not cardinal number right uh, with 10th in surrounded at 1200 uh, this peninsula by the yellow sea the Tsushima Strait and the Sea of Japan Karen guesses or responds with what is Korea and the correct response is the Korean Peninsula so Alex says yeah we'll accept that he also has that same response but a little more exasperated at the $400 level in Taste the Rainbow Uh, the clue is this brand of canned and frozen veggies offers steam crisp corn niblets and Karen responds as what is Jolly Green Giant and Alex says i think we're gonna accept that yeah 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 it's just just green giant is the brand and i think the jolly green giant is like their like their advertising mascot thing but having i think part of the thinking there i'm guessing is that if you reject jolly green giant nobody's going to ring in and say just green giant right i would think uh so we get daily double number three at clue number 19 in uh, the Russian Revolutions at the $2,000 level. Uh, I, I particularly enjoyed this category because it was kind of relevant to what I talked about last week. Yes. In the uh, in the deep dive. So that was fun mm-hmm. to, to see and get a little more. But anyway, the Daily Double. The clue is, in 1905, this ship sailed into Odessa with a revolutionary attitude, a red flag, and a people's committee newly in charge but Karen is not able to get it. She just, she apologizes, which is very sweet, but also not necessary. Oh, Karen. We should never apologize for simply not knowing something. Yeah. 
I guess put I didn't have the context to know whether I was right, but the only Russian ship name I could think of was the the correct response, which is Potemkin. Yeah. So at the end of Double Jeopardy, Karen has eleven thousand nine hundred. Jameson has nine thousand two hundred, and Matt has eight thousand eight hundred. They get the final Jeopardy category art firsts, and the clue. The first French museum to buy this type of painting was the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Lyon in 1901. And uh, Matt wagers almost everything, which is probably not your best strategic move given these scores, but it pays off for him reasonably well um, because he responds correctly what is Impressionist. So he goes up to 17,595. Jameson responds what is cubist um which josh hill probably clawed something off the wall at that point (laughs) right um uh yes which is brought to mind um uh the tournament of champions where josh respond responded impressionist and it was wrong and cubist was correct right yes um or maybe it was isms not ists in any case yeah yeah so it was it was a reverse right he uh uh of, of this situation he is incorrect with a four thousand eight hundred dollar wager, so he drops down to forty four hundred. Karen has made a cover bet and responds, "What is a impressionist painting?" So she is correct. Yes, um, just is our winner. <laughs> more words than necessary, but yeah. Yeah. So Karen is our winner with eighteen thousand four hundred one, and we will see her back on Monday. Yep. So, time for the dive. Yeah, what are there your guesses? Was, okay, where is it? There is one, and I'm only going to guess this because it seemed like you purposely did not say anything more about it when we talked about it. One of them that came to mind was the uh, third Daily Double on Tuesday, the one about Copernicus. Mm. You did mention that you had people shouting in your room, so I thought maybe that would have inspired you to... Uh, do a little bit on that. I did consider doing that, uh, but, but that didn't. is not the deep dive. Okay. Was it in Thursday's game? It wasn't in Thursday's game. Okay, then I'm not going to have a good guess. All right. Uh, so it was in Tuesday's game. So you were in the right game, but okay. uh, but wrong clue. In the the sphere of science category. Oh, so I was even in the uh, right. Category. So you were yeah you were in the right category, but I actually ended up. Normally I try to do either like. Uh, a missed daily double or triple stumper, um, or or if not that, then a, then a daily double. But in this case, I started researching a bunch of different things, but the one that really sort of caught my imagination uh, was at the $2,000 level. Hmm. Um, the clue was, on August 15, 1934, this craft with sphere in its name took two men 3,028 feet underwater a record that stood for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the correct response there, which Barbara got, was the bathysphere, which I had not heard of until I started researching it. Had, is this something that's familiar to you? I, I know of the bathysphere. I don't really know much about it, though. Yeah. Um, so so we're talking about the, the bathysphere, which, which was a spherical deep-sea submersible lowered on a cable into the ocean to um 
uh, study and observe um, the deep sea and deep sea life. So uh, there are two minds behind the bathysphere. I'm, I'm now I'm reading a book about it, although I, ha- I uh, didn't get all the way through reading an entire book <laughs> uh, <laughs> since, since Tuesday. Um, um, so there's two minds behind the bathysphere, and they are Otis Barton and William Beebe. So Otis Barton is an engineer. He's kind of Massachusetts, sort of um, high society, and had sort of showed an interest in the ocean and in diving from early in life, where he was like making contraptions. I think he was, his family would, would summer in like one of those like Massachusetts, like beachy places. Um, might be Martha's Vineyard. And he would, like, invent contraptions to, like, walk around on the floor, uh, uh, like, the ocean floor. Like, not super deep, because that was, like, a a technological problem, and he was, like, like a teenager. Um, Uh But, you know, trying trying to sort of figure out this problem of, like, getting, like, down deeper in the ocean, like, even from, from pretty early in life. William Beebe was kind of a famed naturalist um he he was doing all kinds of like exploring and observing and writing about it he was closely connected with the new york zoological society i think it was called um what's now like the the bronx zoo and its related organization and uh he had done all of this work with i think like jungles and birds and then sort of pivoted to to announcing that he was going to start studying the ocean and he was sort of like a public figure like people were interested in what he was doing that was like sort of uh made news so he was going to um start studying like the deep sea and he was going to be working from bermuda okay there was history around um you know trying to get deeper into the ocean historically people had used diving bells so the idea is you know you have this sort of contraption that like captures an air bubble and brings it down with you and uh early divers would come down in the diving bell and then you would sort of duck out of your diving bell swim around for a little bit duck back into your diving bell and you'd have a bubble of air and you could you could breathe in there right and explore a little bit that way one of the limitations there is that human lungs can, can't can get much deeper than about 200 feet, no matter what you do, um, if you don't have some kind of protection from the from the pressure. Yeah. In the mid-1800s, um, Edward Forbes had hypothesized that life simply was not possible below 1,800 feet. But in 1860, the telegraph had been in- invented. There were, there were, you know, there were telegraph cables um, along the ocean floor, um, and they needed to raise the Mediterranean telegraph cable for repair. It was at a depth of, of about 6,000 feet. Oof. And uh, they brought it up and found like sea life, like traces of sea life attached to the cable, which uh, revealed that life was possible much deeper than anyone had previously realized. So uh, in 1872, Britain had um, attempted a scientific like expedition to try and understand deep water life better. The ship, the HMS Challenger spent four years on this, um, 
trying to like find deep sea life with whatever methods they could. They tried using like uh, like super deep nets, using like weighted lines to try and measure the depth of the ocean. And one of the problems that they encountered is that they were able to find some life with these nets, but deep sea life that is adapted to the super high pressure ocean environment, when they would try and pull it up, like the, like the fish couldn't survive the lower pressure environment. Huh. And so like the, the cells of their body would like individually like explode. And so they would pull up this net that would end up like basically covered in like fish goo. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So and in 1875, uh, the HMS Challenger discovers the deepest known place on the ocean floor. The deepest known at that time, but I think also they were pretty close to still the deepest known place on the ocean floor. Hmm. Um, so there's this problem that like we're curious about this deep sea life, but we can't bring it up to look at it and we can't get down to it. Windowless submarines had gone down to 328 feet. A human in an armored suit had gone down to 525 feet. Nice. Um, yeah, but William Beebe wants to wants to find a way to get lower, learn more about the deep sea, um, and he's like this famed naturalist. So he announces that he has a plan to try and explore the the deep sea using a submarine or like a not not a submarine, a, like a cylindrical kind of um, submersible. I think his plan was like one and a half feet by seven feet for this like like canister basically that he would be lowered into the ocean and to to like do his observations and there's an article about this in the new york times which is seen by otis barton guy who's been like as a teenager try, kind of inventing ways to get like deep you know in, into underwater in the ocean and barton tries to contact bb but bb is like so like deluged with like fan mail and um well-intentioned people with you know with ideas that aren't going to work that he's like pretty much ignoring his mail at this nice. time but there is a mutual acquaintance who arranges a meeting between the two of them and barton has like an engineering solution for bb's problem part of the problem is like all the existing like submarines and submersibles are like roughly cylindrical and barton thinks that they're going to need a sphere to withstand mm. the pressure of the deeper sea interesting so the two of them come up with this deal. Um, Otis Barton is going to pay for the construction of the bathysphere and the related equipment himself. Bibi's going to pay other expenses. Most notably, they need a ship that's going to like lower and raise and like drag the thing around. And Barton gets to come along on all of the bathysphere's like descents. Nice. Yeah. So they get started on constructing this thing. It is a steel sphere. Uh, they had initially planned to have three windows, um, but they end up with uh, going with two windows. The windows um, are made of fused quartz. There's at this time there's no glass that's going to that Barton thinks will be able to withstand the kind of pressure that they're talking about. It is four point seven five feet in diameter, and the whole thing is spherical. So there's no bench. There's no level floor. Um, they're going to be just sort of sitting on this like concave floor. They bring canis they're gonna bring canisters of oxygen down with them. And then they are they're going to have like these trays of chemicals 
out uh, soda lime and calcium chloride, which are supposed to absorb the carbon dioxide that they're exhaling. And then they're going to use palm frond fans to circulate air within the bathysphere so that, you know, so that the, the oxygen and the carbon dioxide sort of all, you know, like, I mean, they have no, they have sure. no uh, circulation system, but the right. palm frond fans, that's their plan. <laughs> um, and William Beebe has a station on Nonsuch Island in Bermuda um, okay. that was going to, going to be kind of their home base. There's an initial sphere and the problem is that it is too heavy for the winch that they've been able to procure. Uh. Yeah. So, but they end up finally with a final version that they're going to work with. It is, uh, the, it is cast steel. The steel is an inch thick. It weighs 2.25 tons on land, although, you know, in the ocean, that's significantly reduced. And they have 3,000 feet of steel cable, which weighs an additional 1.35 tons. The sphere is manufactured by Watson Stillman Hydraulic Machinery Company in New Jersey. Uh, the cable's made by John A. Roebling Sons Company. And the spotlight is from General Electric. Uh, so there's a spotlight. They're, they're going to spot, shine a spotlight out one window and look out the other window Ooh. for visibility. And, they're, and they have a telephone to communicate with the boat that will have the cable. Telephone provided by Bell Laboratories. Inside the sphere, they are completely shielded from the pressure of the environment around them. But they know that um, if there is like even a pinpoint leak, the pressure difference is so huge that water is going to like the like the spray of the water coming in um, is potentially deadly, you know, let, <laughs> let alone the drowning and stuff. Right. Yeah. So their initial dives are conducted um, uh, from the deck of a former British naval ship called the Ready, and then the Ready is towed by a tugboat called the Gladys Fen. And they've got a couple of assistants who uh, keep showing out, showing up throughout this project. Um, John T. Van was an assistant to William Beebe, like throughout his uh, throughout his professional life. They'd been working together since long before this. And his job is to kind of coordinate between the the two ships, the the tugboat that's pulling, and the ready. And then another assistant who's really key in this project is um, woman Gloria Hollister who is in charge of um, communicating with the bathysphere and like taking notes based on whatever they're saying into the telephone. Okay. In May of 1930, they make their first dive um, just down to 45 feet to test it out, uh, which is successful. And then they send it down deeper, but unmanned. And there are some technical problems with like cables tangling, which they managed to resolve on, on another unmanned dive. And so in June of 1930, they do their first deep manned dive um, down to 803 feet. Yeah. And then throughout that summer, summer of 1930, they continue to do uh, deep dives to observe ocean life, um, as well as what they call contour dives, where they're sort of mapping like the, uh, the underwater terrain. Uh-huh. As they're doing these dives, they discover that below certain depths, only like blue and violet wavelengths of light are making it down. And they start to see like some of the, some uh, deep sea life that was, that's, you know, previously unknown or unobserved. Cool. June 16th of 1930 is Gloria Hollister's 30th birthday. And so in celebration, um, 
Otis Barton and William Beebe let her dive in the bathysphere with uh, with the other assistant, John T. Van. Um, uh, so she sets a record for a deepest dive by a woman. Cool. And then in fall in the fall of that year, so they've just they've just barely started using using this thing. Um, but Barton donates the bathysphere to the New York Zoological Society. Um, which is like the the organization Bibi's been partnering with all along. So now it's no, it's no longer like his personal property. It's you know it belongs to the New York Zoological Society, but they'll continue to use it. Gotcha. Um, so in 1931, diving was foiled by a number of factors. The winch needed repair, um, and then once it was repaired, there was like a bad hurricane season. Um, Meanwhile, the Great Depression is starting, and so funding is a problem. So they don't do any dives in the summer of 1931. Um, and summer is really kind of the season to, you know, to, to do this kind of ex- exploration. But in 1932, they're able to resume, uh, and they're no longer on their, like, British naval ship tugboat combination. They're launching from a single ship, uh, the Freedom. Okay. And they make a deal with NBC to do a radio broadcast of their observations. They uh, they try to install a third window in the bathysphere. Um, uh, they had originally planned for three windows. They ended up with two windows and like a steel plug. They try to replace the steel plug with a third window, and send it down with they send it down empty uh, as a test, and it comes up almost entirely full of water. Oof. Yeah, and BB realizes when he sees that it is almost entirely full of water that that water is at whatever pressure the water was at where where the bathysphere was when it when it filled so this is a this is a almost five foot sphere of like highly pressurized water and so he has everyone stands back stand back he starts to loosen a bolt and the bolt shoots 30 feet and gouges out a metal part of the winch (laughs) yeah good call Um, yeah uh probably he should not have been that close either i don't know who should have done this like it's it sounds a little risky to me but anyway um everyone's safe there's some damage to the winch and they need to they need to rework the whole bathysphere um so they replace the third window with the steel plug again there were initially some problems with uh with the reinstalled steel plug there's there's some leaks again although like not i don't think they didn't descend to that same depth but eventually they they reinforce it and uh have a successful unmanned test run nice. and so they go ahead with their radio broadcast dive uh which is september 22 1932 they've scheduled it for that date but the seas are very rough and uh otis barton vomits on the way down so they're just Oof. like in there with some puke um, oh. yeah and the the sea is so rough that they're and they're like just knocking around inside this you know steer steel sphere um, they both end up like bruised and bleeding from being tossed around, um, but they complete their dive uh, and end up broadcasting from a depth of two thousand two hundred feet. Okay. In nineteen thirty-three, the bathysphere is displayed at the American Museum of Natural History, and later at the uh, Century of Prog- Progress World's Fair in Chicago. Oh yeah. Uh, where Bibi shared the fair's Hall of Science with Auguste. Picard, who held the world record for altitude uh, for his ascent into the stratosphere in a hot air balloon. Nice. Um, yeah. Great, and great, Picard great was... grandfather of Jean-Luc Picard. Just kidding. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> it's good. Good joke. Uh, although, 
this is this is Picard. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I think I am. It's Picard with two C's. Oh well, never um, mind then. <laughs> yeah, Jean Luc Picard is with one. I think. I right? think it is. Yeah. yeah. I I uh, sort of mentally made that joke to myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, so Picard is sponsored by the National Geographic Society for some of his work, and that gives Bibi the idea the idea that he may be able to get some funding that way. So he writes to uh, Gilbert Hovey Grossbrenner of the National Geographic Society to propose a sponsorship. And they agree, um, contingent on Bibi descending to at least a half mile depth in the bathosphere and writing two articles for them about it. Hmm. So uh, the bathosphere is in need of some repairs, um, which the funding from the National Geographic Society enables. There are like starting to be minute fractures in the quartz windows, which that sounds bad. Right. <laughs> um, and that whole uh, situation where it came up full of pressurized water that's damaged one of the bolts. And also while they're uh, while they're working on it, they uh, add some upgrades, including an electric fan, woohoo, uh, uh, to be powered by the same uh, cable that's powering the spotlight. Um, and uh, they're adding a barometer and a more powerful spotlight. Cool. So uh, they start testing out new dives with the renovated bathosphere. The first one, they go down four feet and start to leak and come back up. The second test, they find a problem with one of the hoses. Third test, uh, it goes down empty but with a camera. And the camera successfully captures an image of a fish. And then in August 11, on August 11 of 1934, um, BB and Barton go down to 2,510 feet. They encounter a bunch of new species of fish, and they are using a spectroscope to measure the wavelengths of light that are vanishing as they descend. Um, and there's some like connection there with like they're testing out hypotheses from uh, like from quantum physics. Nice. Um, yeah. As they're doing these deep dives, they're starting to they're they're finding bioluminescent fish, and apparently they did a lot of like turning the spotlight on and off, trying to like observe, you know, because like you, you need the spotlight on to kind of see what's going on around you. But if you if you've got a bioluminescent fish in your sights, you want to you want to turn the spotlight off and kind of see what you can see. And uh, they do the their deepest dive on August fifteenth of nineteen thirty four. They dive to a depth of 3,028 feet. That's more than six times deeper than anyone else had ever been before. And that is the deepest they can go because that's how long their cable is. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so they want to stay down there for half an hour, but the captain of the ship they're being launched from won't allow it. He pulls them up after five minutes. Um, and that is the time that they uh, set their record that would stand for 15 years. Nice. Yeah. Also on August 15th, the same day they set the record, um, Barton gets back in the bathosphere uh, with Gloria Hollister, and they go down to 1,208 feet, which uh, sets another new record for deepest female diver, um, and that record stood for about 30 years, and uh, their final dive is on August 27, 1934. So they had a number of descents over, over the course of four years. At that point, Bibi feels that the bathosphere project is complete, that, you know, whatever further funding he can find, like, he, he feels like th this, this particular thing, um, it has some limitations. In particular, he can't f 
follow an interesting fish or, you know, whatever, because it's not self-propelling. Um, right. You just sort of get dropped down and you can, you can conceivably be dragged a little bit, but, but the limitations of the bathosphere make him think it's not worth um, sort of continuing to pursue this project. And so he moves on to other things. That's how the bathosphere project ends. Although I think it was, I think it's Beebe who um, breaks the breaks the record for deepest dive. It was not William Beebe. It was it was Otis Barton. Um, so it's it's Otis Barton who, uh, in 1949, um, breaks the record uh, with a new vessel. I guess that's a different story for a different day. I haven't read that part of the book. Yet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so uh, the bathosphere um, went on display for a while, and then it was kind of warehoused for a while uh, but is now again on display at the coney island aquarium in brooklyn and a copy a replica of it also is on display at the bermuda aquarium museum and zoo um, because bermuda is where they did their work awesome so yeah and there are a few things i didn't touch on in particular um barton attempted to like make a like a like a film about this whole thing that was not especially successful but the bathosphere it seems like it's uh it's legacy it comes up in like video games and stuff a lot apparently i'm not a big gamer but maybe maybe you've encountered this the idea of the bathosphere yeah the idea of the bathosphere yeah i mean in in certain kind of steampunk sort of settings or uh particularly it's making me think of the uh bioshock games at least bioshock one and two yeah so yeah yeah so that brings us to our quiz Um, and the theme of the quiz i hope you'll forgive me is deep dive well i mean i i would expect nothing less (laughs) i it it's embarrassing how long i worked on learning about the bathosphere before i realized that i was doing a deep dive on deep dives um yeah once once i realized i had to sort of commit to the theme all right are you ready yep Okay, question one. The bathosphere descended to 3,028 feet, but the ocean goes a whole lot deeper than that. Uh, Only four humans have descended to the deepest part of the deepest trench in the world, the Mariana Trench in the Western Pacific Ocean, Uh, the four humans being three scientists and one film director. Uh, But this is a math question. So uh, (laughs) geography math. To within 20% either way, how deep is that deepest part of the Mariana Trench? Oh, this is something I should know, and I do not know at all. I really don't. I'm, I'm not going to be able to get there at all. So uh, I'm just going to take a guess. And since I'm a mile high here, I'm going to go a mile down there. 5,280 hmm. feet. All right. You are off by a factor of, like, between, let's see, like, factor of like seven ish um uh so the deepest deepest part of the mariana trench is 30 that we've measured so far is thirty five thousand eight hundred fifty three. good lord feet. yeah so i would have accepted up to 20 percent either way so uh between yeah. like if you'd guessed somewhere in the 28,000 to 43,000 range that is insane that been close enough yeah right Yes. So, yeah, the bathosphere went 3,000 feet deep, and it goes 10 times deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Everest is 29,000 feet. Yeah. 
So that's deeper, that is farther below the surface than Everest goes above. Right. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you could you could put Mount Everest on the bottom of the ocean, and the top of it would still be a mile below the surface. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, there's only, only four people have, um, have been down close to that, to that deepest part. Um, there was a 1960 descent uh, with scientists Don Walsh and Jacques Picard, um, the son of Auguste Picard, who we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And then James Cameron went oh, down yeah. solo. I remember yeah. that, yeah. And then actually in April 2019, uh, there was a new record for deepest descent uh, set by Victor Vescovo, who went, I think, a few feet deeper than any of the others had gone. Nice. All right, so uh, so we're from from depth to diving. Um, in competitive diving, the diver's body is supposed to assume one of four positions. I don't want to make you do mental gymnastics, so I'll tell you that two of the four are straight and free. For five points each, can you name the other two? Okay. The other two positions in diving. The other two positions uh, that your body can assume during the flight portion. Of the dive in competitive diving. So you said free and straight. Yes. There was a hint in there. Yes. I'm pretty sure one of them is tuck. Mm -hmm. And I know you said mental gymnastics. So I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that that's the hint. Yes. And think of gymnastics things. I'm gonna I'm gonna okay, so it's not rhythmic gymnastics it's not floor routine it's parallel parallel rings bars vault could be vault yeah i'll go with tuck and vault ah that's a that's a pretty good guess uh tuck is correct uh vault is incorrect the other the other um uh body position is pike um, Pike, which is oh yeah, which yeah. Is one of the standard positions in in gymnastics. I um, I I knew that. Yeah. I I become an expert in diving every four years and then immediately forget it all again. <laughs> Don't we all though? Right. <laughs> um, but that's coming up this right. year. I love the Olympics. Anyway, moving yeah. on. Yeah. All right, so you're at five points. Um, Oof. Maybe I calibrated a little hard this week. I'm sorry. It's um, okay. Bring it on. All right. Uh, question three. Um, from 1991 to 1998, a recurring interstitial on the show Saturday Night Live would feature soothing music and natural scenery with scrolling text read out loud, offering sentiments such as, the face of a child can say it all, especially the mouth part of the face. <laughs> and before you criticize someone, walk a mile in their shoes. That way, you'll be a mile from them, and you'll have their shoes. <laughs> um, I'm looking for the title of this recurring interstitial. I will offer five points for a partial title, or ten points if you can think of the full name of the segment, including the name of the comedian. Uh, okay, I believe that's Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. You're correct. Yeah. I love those. <laughs> so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose that tradition has sort of been carried on with shower thoughts, uh, or oh, what is it? What are they called? With Nick Offerman, he he did a series of things like oh, that. Oh, um, I know what you mean, but I'm only thinking of the wrong thing, which is like the was it between two palms interviews with Zach? 
however you say his last oh, name. Oh, Zach Galifianakis. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it is Shower Thoughts with Nick Offerman. Yeah, okay. Or Deep Thoughts or whatever. Yeah. yeah. All right, so you're at 15 points. Here comes question four. Uh, the memoir The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Jean-Dominique Bobby describes his experience before and after a massive stroke that left him with locked-in syndrome. He describes his condition using the metaphor of the diving bell. Due to the syndrome, Bobby had to use an unconventional approach to writing the book. How was he able to communicate the words? Believe someone with locked-in syndrome can basically only control, like, their eyes. So I'm going to say that he communicated via blinking. That is correct. Um, there was a good film adaptation of the book as well. Um, and I've read the book. It's remarkable. But yes, he, uh, he worked with an assistant who would read a sequence of letters um, by order of frequency. Um, and he would blink. He ended up only being able to use one eye. The other one they had to, um, they had to keep shut due to irrigation Ugh. issues um yeah so he he could only really use one eye um and he would he would blink when she got to the letter the next letter that he wanted um and that was how he communicated Ugh. everything yeah like that is uh, incredibly impressive and sounds utterly tedious yeah and just heartbreaking yeah um, oh my gosh yeah but nice work Thanks. uh you are at 25 points and question five uh, the world's deepest lake is located in Siberia. Name the lake, which contains more water than all the Great Lakes combined and goes to a depth of more than 5,000 feet. This is one of those facts that stuck with me since like 7th grade geography. And I hope it's right, otherwise I learned this fact wrong. I believe that's Lake Baikal. You are so correct. Yeah. I connect it to nothing. I I was like, is that too hard? <laughs> too obscure? And then I was like, no, nah, Kyle was on the Tournament of Champions. He's got this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you're at 35 points. Uh, how many would you like to wager? Let's go with... It's a significant Christmas number. I don't know. Let's bet 25 for December All 25th. Right. All right. So here is the final. Otis Barton had plans to make a film about the wonders of the deep sea but his efforts were largely unsuccessful. And someone else is much better known for combining filmmaking and marine biology. Who is the French oceanographer who won the 1956 Palme d'Or for his documentary, The Silent World? I believe this is the person who I always have to tell myself not to say Clouseau, because that's a very different character in a very different setting. Um, I believe it's Jacques Cousteau. You are correct. Yes. Yes. All right. Did it. Yeah. Um, uh, I th at first I thought that question was, was veering dangerously close to the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that, that would have been an interesting place to take that one. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, for, for some reason as a teenager, I could not keep straight uh jacques cousteau this is embarrassing marcel marceau <laughs> who is neither an oceanographer nor a filmmaker but it's a mime yeah um, uh, yeah the mime uh, 
That's awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. So you have 60 points. Nice work. Yeah. Those first two questions really, uh, really put, put me, uh, put me on the back foot there. I was like, this is going to be a rough one. Yeah. Sorry. The first two two were, well, you know, it's good to have some hard ones. Yeah. And it's good to have them up front, I think. Yeah. Or maybe not. But anyway. Yeah. But nice work. Thank you. Nice. Nice dive. Thanks. Pun intended. Yeah. Get a little, a little meta here with the deep dive on deep dives. Sure. Um, But no, it was fun. I'm I'm gonna apologize to my wife because there were probably a lot of opportunities for puns in in this <laughs> in this time, and she really wants to get a, a I guess an in absentia segment on our show called Liz's Pun Corner, Ooh. where she doesn't actually show up and say anything, but I just present puns on her behalf. Uh, so I guess I guess we'll get there, but yeah, all right, Liz's Pun Corner. <laughs> anyway. I feel like I should come up with a pun now. Eh, it's fine. We'll work on them for next week. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks for spending your time with us. And uh, make sure to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And if you could leave us a rating or a review, that would be great, too. And, of course, tell all your Jeopardy friends and even non-Jeopardy friends. I have had at least one person tell me that they listen to our podcast because they know me and it made them want to start watching jeopardy which i was shocked and utterly pleased about so (laughs) uh, make sure you tell your friends Uh, word of mouth is great you can find us on social media uh, on facebook at potent potables uh, or on twitter at potent potables one you can email us at potent potables cast at gmail.com and we are actually going to take a vacation week next week. We know there's Jeopardy episodes happening, uh, so we'll do a, a quick little recap in a couple of weeks when we come back of this coming week, uh, and we will have a full episode for you uh, the week of January 6th. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.